Before you take a seat, let's stay standing to honor the reading of God's word. This morning, our text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here's what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, welcome all. It is good to see you here today. My name is Heath. I'm one of the pastors of Valley Community Church. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I do hope we can meet sometime soon. Uh, one brief announcement before we get in um, to everything. Uh, we want to let you know that um, this week, effective this week, you no longer have to do registration for the, the sanctuary service. So, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> People were quite excited about that the first service as well. Um, but you got to hear me on this. We still have to do registration for VCC kids because we need to know who's in the rooms and, and how to staff all those rooms, or if you're going to be in the family room. So hello to you guys in the family room right now. If you've been using the family room, um, you still have to sign up there because of space. And so we need to figure out how to, to get all that ready for you guys when you arrive on, on Sunday morning. But if you're in here in the sanctuary, you do not have to register online. <clears throat> so that's the good news to start out with. Now, today we are launching into a new sermon series, which um, I am beyond thrilled about. I get to do one of the things that I love most, which is work through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, and uh, revel in it, um, and, and do that with my friends and family. So that's what we get to do today through the book of First Thessalonians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Now, every letter worth its salt has a story behind it. A weave of relationships, some drama. It doesn't just float free like some kind of abstraction. It's grounded in some place, some thing, some event, some hurt, maybe some hope. And today we start a letter that is a treasure trove of sacred truth, and it's got quite the dramatic backstory. Now, 1 Thessalonians is far more exciting than we might see at first blush if we read through it briefly. But it is a letter that draws together heaven and earth. It is a letter that draws together the past and the present and the future of the gospel. So, a bit of that backstory. The Apostle Paul, a persecutor of the Christian faith, somebody who wanted to stamp out the Christian faith, has been radically changed. He has met, by God's grace, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and his heart is transformed. And this guy who wanted to squeeze out the faith 
now wants to see it spread and grow throughout the whole world. So that's exactly what he goes about doing. At great cost to himself, he travels all over the place, preaching the gospel, telling people about this Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the Holy Spirit. He goes about planting churches. Now, he goes on all these different missionary journeys. The one that we're looking at right now is what's called the second missionary journey. Around 4950 AD, some, some 20 or so years after Easter Sunday. So Paul, Silvanus, uh, that's also the name Silas, and Timothy, his friends, his co-laborers in ministry, they are working their way through Asia Minor. Asia Minor is what we call modern-day Turkey. There you can see it up on the map to the right. Um, The first half of this journey, they're revisiting churches that that Paul planted, people that he ministered to, checking in on them. It's highly relational for Paul. He wants to see how they're doing. These are his brothers and sisters. So they go traveling through Asia Minor, and they eventually arrive at the western coast there um, at Troas. And there they hop on a boat. They cross the Aegean Sea. They do a little layover there in Samothrace, that little island there. Then they head up north, hit the mainland of this region of Macedonia and Greece, and they get to a place called Philippi. Now, that might sound familiar because we have a letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. So Paul goes there to minister, to teach about who Jesus is. And the way Paul would do it when he would go to a new town is if they had a synagogue, he would go there first to his people, to the the Jews. And he would open up the scriptures and say, look, this whole thing from Genesis on points us to Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited one. He is the promised one. And here is how he's reconciling all things in heaven and earth. And then after he would do that, then he would preach the gospel and teach to to anyone else. So this is what he does in Philippi, plants a church. But as he does, he causes quite a stir and a riot ensues. And Paul and Silvanus are arrested. They're beaten brutally and they're thrown in prison. But then they're sprung from jail by something of a supernatural Earthquake, And on their way out, they witness to the jailer and his whole family is converted. Philippi is never the same after this point. Now, after this, they travel along an ancient highway called the Via Ignatia. Um, an ancient superhighway that ran from east to west, from Byzantium all the way over to Greece and then beyond, so to speak, to get you to Rome. It connected Asia and it connected Europe. And this major highway, this major trade route, ran right by a strategic city called Thessalonica, a port city. So let's talk a little bit about Thessalonica, a highly religious city full of gods for all the travelers that would come through. Whatever God you wanted, you name it, there he or she was in some way, shape, or form. From Thessalonica, across the harbor, you can actually see Mount Olympus, some 50 miles away. The home of the gods, right? They lived in the looming shadow of the home of those Greek gods. There it is. You can see that's Mount Olympus right there in the center. You can see um, Thessalonica, just a small portion of it, but you can see it's a massive, highly populated city right there in the harbor, right, right across from Mount Olympus. Now, um, the imperial cult was also here 
in Thessalonica, the worship of Caesar as the son of God, the one who would be the, the peace bringer, the one who would make the world right. Um, it was called the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that Caesar Augustus would bring to the world. And there he was worshiped as the son of God. Thessalonica was also a bustling, important metropolis, a center from trade, which makes a lot of sense given that it's on the water, given that it's on the Via Ignatia. Good farmland, good mining, great fishing industry. There's also sea, uh, rivers that poured into the sea there. So there's all sorts of good fishing. So it was a bustling metropolis. Here's a picture, by the way. Uh, let's go, there we go. Um, this is the marketplace, the, the Agora or the Agora. And then this was the heart of the city where people would come and meet and talk and all the goods were sold. So this is ancient Thessalonica where Paul would have walked right there in the middle, the heart of the modern city. Population was something uh, over 100,000. Some people estimate up to a quarter of a million people. Now, this is really key for us to understand. This was a free city. It controlled its own affairs mostly. In other words, it wasn't micromanaged by Rome. They were in great standing with Rome. They had status and they kept it by honoring Caesar. Now, on reaching Thessalonica, Paul and Silas, they did what they did in Philippi. They went to the Jewish synagogue, and for three consecutive weeks, the text says in um, Acts chapter 17, that he preached the gospel there. So we know they were there for at least three weeks, probably just, just a little bit more. But an issue came about. The Jewish leaders of those synagogues weren't very happy because here is Paul preaching about this Jesus who they didn't believe was the Savior. So they're thinking Paul's preaching heresy to their faith. And Paul is taking people away from these synagogues and they are now becoming converts of Jesus. This is not okay by them. So they need to find a way to stop this. And so here's what they do. They round up some idle hoodlums, some bad company from the marketplace, from where this picture is taken. And they cause a riot. The mob rushes to the home of Jason, um, which was the host of, of Paul and his friends. Uh, but Paul and uh, Sylvanus and Timothy, they're not there. We don't know where they are at this point, but they can't find them. So this mob grabs Jason. They put him in front of the Roman magistrates and they say, this is not okay. Do you know who you're housing? Rabble, you are, you are housing those, and it says in Acts 17, who are turning the world upside down. That's something to be accused of. Because they're going to all these different cities, saying these things, causing these issues. And so they say, he needs to get out of here. You cannot house him. You're going to be in trouble. See, it's not just that Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing something that's causing a little bit of an uproar. What they're doing is a huge issue, big problem. Who are they claiming is king? Jesus. Jesus is king. They're also claiming that he is the son of God. Who else claims to be king and the son of God at this point? Caesar, big issue. This was political sedition. This was treason. They could be severely beaten and beheaded for this, right? I mean, this is a big problem. And Thessalonica, like I said, they had a really great relationship with Rome. And if they're caught harboring traitors, 
the Roman hammer is going to fall and they're going to lose everything. They're going to lose their good standing. They're going to lose their independence. They won't be a free city. They're going to lose their tax-exempt status. And that hits them right in the pocketbook. Right? Big issue. See, Paul and this new church, these apprentices of Jesus, they are enemies, so to speak, of the good life of the Thessalonian way. They see the world totally different. They use money and power and sex in very different ways than the Thessalonians do. And the Thessalonian good life is being upended because of this good news of Jesus Christ. A counterculture has entered into their midst. Now, like something from a spy movie, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they escape cloak and dagger style under the cover of night. So they get out of Dodge, they head out of Thessalonica. They head to a place called Berea. Uh, we can see that here on the map. They go south to a little place called Berea, and they do the same thing. They preach the Gospels. They open up uh, <clears throat> the Scriptures, right? The, the violence and, and the difficulty, the persecution they face have not stopped them. This is not an easy thing. They're doing it because it is good and right, and Jesus is worthy of all worship. So they head down to a town called Berea there. And there in Berea, um, Paul leaves Silvanus and Timothy to do the work of ministry for a while. We don't know exactly why, but they are going to be doing ministry there. And Paul heads out of town. This time he goes south to Athens. We have a good portion of scripture regarding this um, in, in the book of Acts. And there Paul ministers and preaches Jesus. Eventually, Paul heads over to Corinth. Now, uh, you know, we have the letter, First and Second Corinthians in our scriptures. So now you can see some of these letters all tying together. Thessalonians, Philippians, Corinthians, and they're all woven into this dramatic story. Now, Paul is in Corinth for about 18 months or so. And at this point, Silas, Silvanus, and uh, Timothy, they all come back and they meet up with Paul in Corinth. And Paul says, I've missed you. It is good to be with you. How are the Thessalonians doing? Those were an intense few weeks while we were there. The spirit was, was in operation. God was opening up hearts. The, the church was, was, was born there, so to speak, or it was blooming there. How are they doing? I know it was rough going. Are they okay? I, I need to know. So Timothy, who's this young strapping lad, he sends him off running. And there Timothy goes back up to Thessalonica to check on them, to encourage them, to pray for them, to, to teach, and then bring back a report to Paul. And he does just that. Timothy eventually comes back and he goes, Paul, the persecution is severe. The pressure is on. They are living in a furnace. They are ousted financially and socially and politically. They're ostracized. But they're flourishing. They're faithful. The work that they're doing, how they're living Word and deed are coming together. The Spirit is moving. Paul, be encouraged. The church is alive and well in the furnace heat of Thessalonica. And so Paul's overjoyed at this point. And so he wants to send a letter to them to encourage them, to thank the Lord for them, to bless them. So he writes First and Second uh, Thessalonians from Corinth, and he sends at least the first one off right, right away. He instructs them how to lead a godly life in this letter, as well as he clears up some confusion about the return of Jesus Christ. 
Now, that's a good backstory. That's a good backstory. And that will help us to interpret this letter properly now that we have it set in its context. But here's, here's the truth of this letter. This letter is a letter that's written to a down-to-earth church. You could call this message, the title of this message, a down-to-earth church. Because it is a letter that helps us to see that the church is a people. is a people in which heaven comes to earth. The church is a people in which heaven comes to this earth. So let's go through this now, verse by verse, line by line. So meet up with me here at chapter 1, verse 1. Let me reread it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Suddenly, boom, stories loaded in your mind. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, in the very first line, we see something beautiful. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, a community writing to a community. Right away, Paul is showing us that this Christian life thing is not some kind of lone wolf operation. Our Western radical individualism is not compatible with the Christian faith. That is a life of brothers and sisters enmeshed, interwoven together because they are united in Christ. Our faith is a deeply personal faith that bleeds into every aspect of who we are, but it is not a private faith. Recall our seven practices. Right before Easter, we were in a sermon series called The Way of Apprenticeship, and we looked at seven practices of apprenticeship that we see all throughout the Scriptures. And one of those was life together. Living together as brothers and sisters, as a counterculture to this world. Living faithfully in ways that are holy and set apart, empowered by the Spirit of God that we might bless others, that it might lead to their flourishing, that we might glorify God in all we say, do, and are. Life together. We need each other to encourage each other, to hold each other accountable, to lift each other up, to walk through the good and the bad. Life together. The church in Thessalonica is not a building. It is a people who live life together in a countercultural way, a holy way. Now, look at these words. The church in God the Father and Jesus Christ. That's, that sounds kind of weird. Why not the church of God the Father and Jesus Christ? What's with this preposition? What's with in God the Father and Jesus Christ? Well, here we see the origin and the nature of the church. We are those united to God the Father because of the work of Jesus, because we are united to Jesus, because his Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are drawn into this Trinitarian life. We have union with our Savior. We have union with our Creator, our, our Redeemer. Because his Spirit is with us, we are now new creations, united to him. And this union with him, which comes by grace, now results in what? Peace. Right? We see that right there. Grace to you and peace. The church is the church who are those in God the Father, who are in Christ Jesus, who are united to him. Apprenticeship begins with union to Jesus by the power of his spirit. 
And that union brings peace to the restless heart, to the anxious soul. Reconciliation with our Creator locks our heart back into socket, into place, so that we can live as we ought to live. A healthy church is one that knows and is thankful for this union with Jesus. A healthy church is one that loves to look into the mystery of this gospel, that God the Son would come to this earth and take on flesh and die in our place and rise again and give us his spirit that we might become one with him. A healthy church looks into this mystery, adores it, glories, opens up the scriptures and wants to know more about this Jesus. Well, next... We get to see that this church is embodying the gospel. It is a down-to-earth church bringing heaven down to earth. Now, last series we talked about apprenticeship. What is an apprentice? And recall this definition. Apprenticeship to Jesus is embodied, loving trust in Jesus. Embodied, full on, all of who you are, an integrated trust that involves your hands, your heart, your head, your emotions, all of you. Apprenticeship is embodied loving trust in Jesus, empowered by his Holy Spirit. We don't work it up. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of heaven invading the heart and turning the chaos into order. And then transforming us into his image that we might become like Jesus embodied, lived out. This is the faith. This is what Paul taught and preached about. And Paul sees this in the Thessalonian church and he gives thanks. He celebrates it. So let's pick up at verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So here on the front end of this letter, Paul models a life of unceasing prayer. And his prayer begins with gratitude, with thanks. See, prayer is always a response to God. He is and does, he bestows grace. Prayer is a response to his goodness. The practice of unceasing prayer is talking first and most to God about everything because it's realizing how dependent you are, that you are secondary in nature and he alone is essential. And out of grace, he has come to us and engaged with us. And so Paul's life of prayer rises out of, out of thankfulness, out of the soil of a thankful heart. And I know it's, it's common sense, like thankfulness is, is the proper response to grace, to a gift come your way. God initiates, we respond. All we are, say, and do is a response to who he is, what he said, and what he has done. Now the question here is, what is it exactly that Paul is thankful for? And there's three things that I kind of broke out there so you can see it. Paul's thankful for the church's work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are commonly called, you know, the three great virtues of the Christian faith, right? Faith, hope, and 
love. Here, Paul tweaks the order a bit because he wants to end with hope because he's going to lead us into a theme of what's coming. So that makes a lot of sense why he did that. And Paul is thankful for these. But what is he really getting at here? Well, he's getting at that these are expressed. They are made visible in the life of these Thessalonians. This is a little bit word nerdy here, but that's kind of who I am, so maybe go with me for just a moment. But in, in Greek, these, these um, words here, these are of the genitive case. Your work of faith, your labor of love, steadfastness of hope, and that genitive case, what that means is it expresses possession or origin. So here's what he's saying. Their faith has brought about work. Their love is the source, the origin of their labor. Their hope has brought about in endurance. Their faith has brought about work, good deeds. The, this word here uh, means the actual kind of the deeds themselves. In other words, they are listening to what Jesus said about how to live, and they are living in accordance with that reality. They are loving their neighbor. They are obeying their Lord. Their love has brought about labor. Now this labor sounds just like a synonym of work, but it's a little different. It's a different emphasis. And this word labor here, um, kapos, what, what this means is it's costly effort. This means it's the, it's the intentionality and the effort that's, that's an effort of strain and it's costly. It means there's blood and there's sweat. This is a hard endeavor. And isn't that true? Love is actually a very costly, hard endeavor. To love others well will draw blood and sweat out of you. You give of yourself for the good of the other. And it's costly to yourself. You give up your time, your talent, your, your, your treasures, your opinions, your preferences for the good of other people. And Paul says this is how they live. Their hope. Their hope has brought about steadfastness, helping them to stay strong amidst all the pressures and the persecution because they're feeling it from every sector of Thessalonian life. Their whole world has been upended or put right and they're living in an upside down world. So all the pressures are coming at them, but they have hope that gives them endurance. Now, this, this hope isn't some vague kind of hope. It's not a wish. So Christian hope Biblical hope is not a, a wish. And here's how I, I remember it. And if I put in these words, it helps me. Christian hope is not, I wish so, so I wonder. Like, I just, I wish, I, I want it to happen. So I'm going to, I'm wondering if it will happen. That's kind of, that's the world's definition of hope. Biblical hope is, I know so, so I wait. It's not, I wish so, so I wonder. It's, I know so, so I wait. And, and what is this thing that they wait for that shapes the present? Now, by the way, just think of it kind of like this. Maybe this illustration will help. Hopefully it doesn't muddy anything. But think of somebody, um, a younger person who's single, um, and they, they hope for a wedding day. They really look forward to that, that wedding day, and they say they, they hope for that wedding day. That's a little bit more of a kind of a wondering when, and I, I want it to be. I don't know if it will. Now think of somebody who is engaged and they have a long engagement before them. The, the date is set. Everything is on track to go, go forward. 
They say they hope in their wedding day. They know so, now they have to wait those 9, 10, 11, 12, those long months until that day comes. It's coming, they just have to wait. The Thessalonians are waiting for a wedding day, so to speak. Something is coming, and now they have to wait. And it's shaping what they do every day. What's shaping what they do? What is this thing? Well, they await what Christ started at his resurrection and he will finish at his return. The renewal of all things. When he comes, when he steps on the scene, when he takes what is unjust and he makes it right, he brings justice. When he takes the aches and the tears and he heals and he wipes away and he restores, he will right all that is wrong when he returns. The new creation will flourish those hopes that are buried in your heart and and your chest will find flower one day and will actually produce a harvest because he will come and do his work. So he's coming back. So knowing that Jesus returns, they have this perspective so that now they can endure the pressures because they know there's a shelf life to these persecutions. They know that there is a time limit to all of this brokenness and he is coming back. And so they're living in the moment in light of what is coming. Now, in other words, if I just sum up this portion, they have so embodied their trust in Christ that their faith, love, and hope is given flesh. The ethics of the kingdom of heaven are active on earth. The kingdom of heaven is alive and kicking amidst the the empire of Caesar. The good, the beautiful, and the true are growing like a fruitful vine amidst the dirt and the ashes of a broken kingdom. The Thessalonians, in the words of one of our other practices of apprenticeship, the Thessalonians are living as a faithful witness to the way of Jesus in the place and time that God has put them. And people are taking notice because these are a counterculture people who use those things like money, sex, and power very differently. So Paul thanks God. Paul thanks God for the work born of faith, for the labor born of love, for the endurance born of hope. But notice this, he doesn't just commend the Thessalonians, hey, good job, or thank them. He takes it back to the ultimate source. He thanks God. God is the source of their faith, hope, and love. God empowers their work, their labor, and their endurance. It's all because of God. It's, it's, it's grounded. It's rooted in his grace. And we see this in verses 4 and 5. Here's what it says. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So here we see this heavenly way of being here on earth is grounded in God's grace. Notice too, by the way, he he calls the church brothers and sisters loved by God. The word's Adelphoi, brothers, but it it includes male and, and female in a company. Brothers and sisters. The church... This is so pivotal and so often misunderstood. The church is the family of God. United to God, adopted to God as his children. Now we are united to each other as brothers and sisters. 
This is not some kind of rhetoric to get people plugged into a church, say, hey, your family, you're welcome, you're accepted here. This is a deep reality of who we are in this world, that we are united as family, brothers and sisters, because we are united to God, our creator. We're family. Not just rhetoric, but a reality that words often fail to capture. Well, Paul then says he's thankful that God has chosen them in his love. And I could go on a detour here and talk for a few hours about this. There's much we can say about election, about the doctrine of election. Doctrine meaning teaching, election that God has called, God has chosen. God is sovereign, overseeing all things. There are many things to say. But here's what I think we should say at this point in the the letter. They are chosen because he loves them. It is the love of God that makes us his children. It is the love of God that makes us his apprentices. It is the love of God that brings about the work of faith. It is the love of God that brings about the labor of love. It is the love of God that brings about steadfastness of hope in our lives. Ultimately, election, this doctrine of election is about the love of God that is graciously given to people. And if we talk about election without understanding that it is rooted in God's love, we miss the whole point. God's love is on display in him calling these people to himself. Now, how does Paul know they're chosen by God? What reason does he give? Because the preaching of the good news of Jesus didn't come just in word, although it came in word. It's a message. It needs to be told. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's who he is. Here's the implications, how it changes everything. It needs to be spoken. But it doesn't come just in word and syllables and the movements of lips and teeth and tongue. It it comes in power. It comes in spirit. It comes in, in full conviction. In other words, something happened. The gospel is the power of God by the power of his spirit moving through its proclamation. Stones are rolled, hearts turn to flesh. People who were walking this way now are walking this way. People whose minds were were darkened and gravitated toward the, the broken things are now captivated, intrigued, and they move towards the light. Something has happened. The Spirit of God has moved on people and brought the dead to life. The Thessalonians are different than they were. And it's evidenced in their transformed lives, not just the things they say, not just their posts online, but how they live. So to distill this down, the church embodied their trust in Jesus Christ, empowered by his spirit. They were being transformed into his image. They were now apprentices of this Jesus. Apprentices of Jesus embody the kingdom of heaven here on earth. It is our calling. Say it this way, the church is a spirit-filled family of God. The church is a spirit-filled family of God who shows heaven has come down to earth. We are to be a glimpse of the glorious future here in the groaning and messy present. 
How beautiful of a calling is this? It's all empowered by spirit. And let me say it one more time. The church is a spirit-filled family of God who shows heaven has come down to earth because Christ came down and now his spirit is with us. And we are to be a glimpse of the glorious future here now in the groaning and messy present of the life we all know. Now, to bring this together, um, I want to put forward a few reflections here. So I'm going to tie these strands together just to to distill this here. So here are some marks of Jesus' down-to-earth church. We've already covered them, but let's just see them back to back to back. Some marks of Jesus' down-to-earth church include life together as brothers and sisters. We are not a loose collection of people associated by some philosophical thoughts or a location we meet in, or an ideology, or a philosophy. We are made brothers and sisters, and we are to live our life together for each other's flourishing in God's glory. Another mark of a healthy down-to-earth church is a heart at peace because of union with Jesus. We can walk amidst the chaos of this world with a posture of poise and and peace because anxiety isn't the king. Christ is, and he's in control. So we have peace with him. Another mark is thankfulness and unceasing prayer. We realize that we're a people fully dependent, dependent upon every breath that is going in and out of your lungs right now. The fact that we woke up this morning is because he is a good and gracious God and it, he gave us this life. We are not to be an entitled people who just presume that we get, we get, we get. But counterculturally, we say thank you to this God of creation for everything we have, even the suffering that comes our way because it's formative to make us more and more like our suffering Savior. And then a faithful witness. We are to be a faithful witness. So a mark of a down to the church is being a faithful witness through faith that works. How? By obeying God's word, by trusting what he says. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved by his works that transform our heart so that we now live a very different way. Thankfulness, uh, excuse me, a faithful witness in a love that labors for the good of others, sacrificially costing ourselves, and a hope in Jesus' return that produces endurance through all the pressures that come our way, both passive and overtly aggressive. There we go. All right, now, with such a text and such a sermon, I imagine there's a thousand points of application that I can push on to close. But here's what I believe would be really good and helpful for us to do. And I, I believe it was confirmed uh, um, on, on Thursday morning, I opened up some mail. I got a package in the, in the mail. It was from a young man who went to our church, but they, they moved. And so he's over on, on the East Coast. And this letter just was such an encouragement about this church and, and how God had moved through this church to, to form his, his young heart. And it was an encouragement to me because what I thought we should be doing after hearing the sermon is, well, let me put it to you this way. First Thessalonians is a letter written by Paul who is marked out, seen evidences of God's grace in a people's life. So he offers a letter of thankfulness to God and, and, and to encourage this church. So I wonder, I wonder what would happen in our hearts and, and therefore our actions. And I wonder what might happen 
in others' hearts and their actions and what might happen in our city at large if we were to put pen to paper, quite literally, write a letter, a letter worth its salt that considers the weave of relationships we have, that has some drama, some story as a backdrop that is grounded in some place, some time, some event that comes from some hurt or some hope that we have experienced. What if each of us were to look about and ask God, God, give me the eyes to see, speak to me. Look about at our brothers and sisters within this church family or, or another church family or greater church family and ask God to see the evidences of grace and that he would give you the words that you might write a letter thanking him and encouraging this person because of their work of faith, their labor of love, their endurance of hope. Guys, what if we pick up a pen? open a word processor and prayerfully write them a letter and let them know how they have been living has been a glimpse of heaven that has come to this earth to their embodied trust in Jesus. I recommend this be analog. Um, There's something special. There's something special, something sacred and a tangible gift that you know it took them time. It wasn't just quickly done, but it took them time to to form this or maybe rewrite it because it's smudged and then put it in an envelope and find a stamp and put a stamp on it and walk it out and put it in the mailbox. There's cost to that kind of thing and it gives it weight. Now, if you can't do that, sure, use an email, it's fine. But just imagine with me a moment Mail carriers carrying real physical letters going from home to home to home, letters that honor God and thank him for what he's doing through his people on this earth, a tangible people, an embodied people. Too often God's work goes unseen and unrecognized. Let's shine the light on these gemstones in the church family and let the flashes spike so we can see the brilliance of Christ on display. So take this opportunity seriously with me, with great joy. Let's take it serious. Let's all work to write a letter. And and if you can't get it to them, stop by the church. Maybe we can help you get that letter to them, okay? And I understand, I'll close with this. um, Our words are not scripture. Our words are not scripture like 1 Thessalonians. But incredible as it is, the Spirit can and does speak through each other of us by the power of his spirit for Christ's glory. So let's commit to a gratitude letter. Prayerfully consider the evidences of grace in another's life. In a letter, thank God for these evidences of grace. If you need to know how to start, just read Thessalonians again, the front end, pattern your words after his. Let them know you're praying for them and they're flourishing. Share the letter with that person. And may we be amazed. May we celebrate the graces that God has given a down-to-earth church. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your grace. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the great grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has changed everything. And I pray, Father, that we would walk out 
this faith that we would inhabit this world in such a way that others might say, there's a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven because the spirit is on the move in that person. And Father, um, I want to pray right now for those who came in here today who um, may not have known you intimately on the way in, but you have done something in their heart. Um, Father, would they pray this morning, um, Lord, have mercy on on me, a sinner. Um, I need you. And would this act of coming to the table today uh, be their first profession of faith? And for those of us who know you, would you open up our eyes wider to the glory of the gospel? that we might become more and more thankful when we come to this table of grace.